Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. So one of my comedy heroes is a British comedian named Frank Skinner, and he has this expression, the idiotic eureka moment. And the idiotic eureka moment, or IEM, is when you discover, when you figure out something that everybody else already knew. So I, I do a lot of cooking, and I take some pride in my cooking. I'm not as good a cook as some of the people on stage or in the audience, but I like to cook and I, I read cookbooks. And so this is quite a few years ago, but I started seeing in all these recipes, this is really embarrassing, as are most <laughs> idiotic Eureka moments. I started seeing these references to Evu. It was like E-V-O-O. And I kept thinking, I'm, that must be like some Indian thing or something. Like I better go to an Indian grocery store and see if they have any Evu. And, um, and I was like, there were a number of things that I didn't make because I thought, well, I'll never be able to get Evu, whatever it is. See? Um, and for those people who remain puzzled, that's extra virgin olive oil. But there was a sort of a, a time when people started calling it Evu right. in recipes. And I was just like, yeah, what, when was what, is, that? what is that? <laughs> um, it, it turns out I had, I, it was her fault. Okay. Oh, yeah. People are blaming Rachel Ray, which I think oh, is such yeah. a cheap thing to do, you know? <laughs> I mean, hasn't Rachel Ray been punished enough? But, um, um, but anyway, I mean, you know, and there's a way in which food is kind of a, a signifier to all of us. It kind of, I mean, speaking of Evu, I just saw the movie Wrinkle in Time. And so it's a, obviously a very sort of thoughtful, interesting, middle to upper middle class family that all these things are happening to. And at one point, they pan across the kitchen and there's a bottle of Evu, and it's, it's the kind, it's that organic kind with the kind of stripey kind of cardboard container. You can sort of get it at, at Whole Foods, and I thought, they're trying to tell me something right now about this family, because, right, we know each other quite a bit by the food that we eat or things that people don't eat. It's one of the ways, even historically, I think we've understood one another. All right, so tonight we've got this terrific panel. We're going to talk about these kinds of things. Uh, sitting to my immediate right is Marlene B. Schwartz, director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity, professor of human development and family studies at the University of Connecticut, and she teaches a class for undergrads at UConn called Food and the American Family. Sitting next to her is Chris Prosperi. You absolutely know him from... Do people, people just go, ooh, that you're here? <laughs> I'm scared. Like, ring, ring goes here, you know, ooh. Well, I hope he's worthy of that sigh, <laughs> whoever sighed. Chris Prosperi, uh, you know him from the Food Schmooze, you know him from his wonderful restaurant, Metro Beast, and he's probably the happiest person I know. I mean, uh, you're like, a, you're sort of happy all the time, right? I like being I, happy. Either that or you're putting on an incredible act. No, I like being no, happy. No, you're always, I don't know, I, mean, I see him a lot, and he's always happy. All right, so, and then to his right is Allison Draper, who has taught a Trinity class called Nutrition, Food, and Fads. Allison is director of Trinity College's Center for Interdisciplinary Science, and she's a toxicologist, which may or may not, you know, you won't need one tonight or anything. I hope nobody will actually need a toxicologist, but I mean, if we did need one, we have one. All right. So what I'm going to do for starters here is I'm going to 
start, I'm going to take them and you on just kind of a, a mental or imaginary tour of a supermarket. We're going to go to the supermarket, you know, and we're going to sort of mentally also be thinking about not just one meal, but maybe people on average go to the supermarket. Americans now go 1.5 times a week. So yeah, maybe you're going to be looking for some food for the next four or five days. So we'll go to the supermarket. First of all, Allison, can we just go to a regular supermarket? We don't need to go to Whole Foods, right? Can we get everything we need at the supermarket? Regular supermarket is fine. Yeah. So we're going to go to Stop and Shop or, or Big Y or something like that. All right. So I walked into, I, I, went, I went to, the, during the day today, I just went to supermarkets. I mean, I go to supermarkets all the time, but I didn't went there not to buy anything, but just to see really see what was there uh, and take pictures of things with my phone, which I think made people think I was some kind of corporate spy. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I walked into Whole Foods, and the first thing you see is this huge counter that says champagne mangoes, five for five dollars. I have no idea what a champagne mango is or why I would want that particular mango other than it was on sale. But so we're going to go to the big Y or the um, stop and shop produce department. I want to ask each one of you sort of what you want to find there, what you think is there that's worth finding, and maybe some of the things that you think are, are not worth finding. And I, I'm, each, I should say we have sort of policy, Epicureanism and science are represented here, but I mean, you're also all human beings. You want food to be delicious. You want to have good meals, but you also have various principles and ideas that you want to see exacted in that process. So, Marlene, I'll start with you. Uh, you know, what do you want to find in the produce department? What are you looking for? Well, usually I'm looking for things that are going to last a few days because I want to not have to go all the time to the grocery store. And so fruits and vegetables that will stay in the refrigerator that my kids can pack for their lunches and will be available for dinners for the week. Mm. Um, so I, I mean, I usually end up getting broccoli. I get lots of oranges and apples, grapefruit. I always want to get the lettuce that comes in the, you know, the really fancy lettuce, but I find that you have to eat that pretty much right away. Or you mean the triple back. wash lettuce, or they're just the yeah, blue. yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> See, I think the triple wash things are really great because you know why? Because you'll use them, mm -hmm. right? You know, they're, you'll use them a because they go bad a little faster, right. but, but you also use them because you'll just throw them into some pasta or something like that because the preparation load is low, right? Right. Yeah, because you can just grab it. Yeah. You don't have to actually wash it yourself. <laughs> so, Allison, you and I were talking. I mean, produce departments are very different from what they were even 30, 35 years ago because everybody expects everything to be available. Everybody expects to have a fresh strawberry every day of the year, which I suppose also has resulted in various kinds of peculiar choices having to be made by produce departments. Right, and a lot of really creative science that goes into that to make that strawberry look red and delicious, even if it isn't. <laughs> um, but yeah, the seasonality of foods is, is sort of missing now. And so we expect to go in and be able to get broccoli no matter the time of year. So a large proportion of the fruits and vegetables sold in the U.S. are grown abroad. And so then we have to worry about the, the transportation of, those, of that produce and, and then the spoilage that might happen during that transportation. So it's enormously complicated. Right. And Chris, the people who are the produce managers know that people are going to make decisions 
that are not really rational decisions. For example, which orange are you going to buy? You're going to buy the one that looks really, really orange, right? Yeah, first, I'm having the hardest time with this part. Have you ever been to a supermarket? I, you know what? <laughs> no, when you said that you went in there with your camera and yeah. you didn't buy anything and you just walked yeah. around, that's what I do. I never buy anything in the grocery store because I never buy food for home because I eat at the restaurant. So my trips to the supermarket are really just to see what's going on in the food world. Yeah. So I actually walk through the grocery store most of the times really late at night because mm -hmm. the stop and shop near me I think is open until 11. So I'm in there right at close and I walk around and just see what, what's out there. Mm. I do notice like for produce, the one thing I notice more than anything is that how the food is changing like Allison said, the food is changing to make it be a specific thing. It needs to travel right? So the tomatoes have thicker skins. It has to last a long time. So we're breeding different varieties that are shelf or more shelf stable than the things you find in the farmer's market. So it's not so much driven by what we want. It's driven by what they can make look good for us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and I mean, the orange that is the most orange, the one that looks vibrant and very glowing with orangeness <laughs> is often dry and tasteless and I mean it's not going to be a necessarily good orange inside right mm -hmm. I mean we're, we are we're selecting for for other qualities so are there things well first of all let me ask you audience a question when you pick up an apple in the supermarket how old do you figure that apple is mm -hmm. two weeks yeah it's, it's six months to a year, right? I mean, Allison, you're nodding. You know yeah. this, right? Yeah. yeah. And, Depend, and stored on... well. Yeah. Stored well, that's all right. Yeah. Um, six months to a year. Yeah, apples only grow one time a year, and they're only picked one right. time a year, and those are the apples we eat. So, Marlene, are, are there things that you see in the produce department that kind of bother you, that you, like, you wouldn't buy? or? Well, actually, things like berries... I, even though they are there all year round, I do have a hard time buying them when it's not the season for the berries, partially the cost. I'm also, I know that berries are one of the things you're really supposed to buy organic, that it's on that mm. list, yeah. but they're so much more expensive. So I have to, I do get stressed out when I look at the berries. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm with you actually, you know, I'm, I'm with you on everything that you just said. How, how about you, Allison? Are there like things, things you just refuse to put up with? Um, no, um, <laughs> um, but I'm in the produce department. I guess I'm I'm looking for a wide variety of colors. You know, there's there's some science behind the idea of eating a wide variety of colors because mm. there's a lot of antioxidant chemicals that are colored, and so the berries and the oranges and so so there's some science behind the the deep exciting colors. I guess one of the things that bothers me is is organic. That for some items, like Marlene said, there is good reason to mm. buy organic, but for others you're much better off to eat more of it than to skimp because you want to only buy organic. Right. And typically a thing that has appeal that you're going to take off, right? Right. If you had right. to sort of... So as you're walking around there and the people who work in the grocery store are going, here's that guy again. Mm -hmm. He comes in at 11 o'clock. <laughs> he doesn't buy anything. He doesn't buy anything. <laughs> I don't get it. Um, so you're looking for... I mean, what, what do you see when you're in the produce, right. produce department? What interests you? I think what I've noticed the most is the similarities. Like, if I were going to shop in a supermarket, I'm 
totally amazed that every supermarket, whether you go, well, Whole Foods might be a little different, but like Stop and Shop and, and Big Y, there's very little variety between the two, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, basically the same food offered in every supermarket, I guess pretty much across the country. Mm -hmm. Our food has become so, right, homogenized, I guess? It's all mm -hmm. one, and, and we don't have variety anymore. It's the same pickles, it's the same ketchup, it's the same mustard, it's the same everything in every store. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, I'd like to see more varieties of things. Well, I mean, I, there's an irony here, Marlene, too, in the sense that, yes, they probably have some nefarious uh, and money-oriented reason for showing you the produce first. But ultimately, that's what you want people to concentrate on, right? We should be building meals, as I'm always telling my son, build a meal that starts with vegetables. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I think to, you know, really promoting the produce is definitely something that we want them to do. Mm. I think another sort of interesting distinction, though, is that there's so little branded food mm. in the produce section. So the sort of marketing that you'll see for other products throughout the store, you don't tend to see that as much in the produce section. Right. Like apples don't sponsor the Super Bowl. Right. You know. I know the Red Center's been doing a lot about sort of what kinds of foods sponsor sports events. Mm -hmm. It's not blueberries, typically. But yeah, I mean, I mean, and, and Allison, maybe there's a little bit more to say about this, too. I mean, we, we, as Americans, I think, sort of think about meat. Meat, you know, for a long time was a status thing. I mean, if you, if our grandparents or my parents, if you could afford a roast on a Sunday, you know, that was, and you were, you know, Irish-American, that was a good sign. But, I mean, we sort of, we've taken it too far, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in a certain generation, too, meat was a way to avoid malnutrition mm. and really played an important role in, in sort of World War II era. But I agree. Meat now, when you think about how you plan a meal, you start with the meat, right? Mm. And then you build from there. And the vegetable is often sort of a, an afterthought. And so starting with vegetables is really turning that whole, that whole idea on its head. I mean, you care about vegetables a lot. I know this. Mm -hmm. I have actually called this man from a farmer's market where there were spring parsnips? Is that what there were yeah, that day? They're yeah, they're out now. I don't know how I knew you wanted them, too. But I, I called them. I was like, uh -huh. <laughs> They're the best thing on earth. So some farms, instead of picking all the parsnips in the fall when you're supposed to pick them, they leave them in the ground. It's an old New England thing because the farmers back then knew when it was a matter of life and death and you needed food, certain things you could leave in the ground and it was like cold storage. But what happens is starch converts to sugar because the plant's trying not to die, right? And the parsnips, when you pull them out in the spring, are sweet like candy. Yeah. We're just getting them now. They're heaven. I, I was in <laughs> Northampton at a farmer's market with my son, and I was seeing these things, and I don't know how I knew that he wanted them, but I took a picture of them with my phone, and I sent it to him, and he texted back, buy them, and I texted back, how many? And he said, all of them. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I finally now have one farm in Granby that does uh, two big plots for right. just us and now we finally have enough but before it was hard to get them to leave them there. right and those people wanted cash too i had to come up with oh. cash to buy all their parsnips <laughs> um so um but so marlene occasionally i think i have to turn to you and make sure that we don't become too first world problem about all this stuff right i mean so i had this first world problem moment the other night where i was looking at a bag of rice that I bought, and I was really mad because it's the kind you have to rinse. You ever have that? You get the white rice home, and you look on the side, and it says you have to rinse it, and I'm thinking, ah, oh, I have to rinse the rice? My, this is awful. This is terrible. I have to rinse the rice. And you then have I'm to thinking, get the minute rice in the bag. Yeah, yeah. No, and then I'm thinking, 
like, what a jerk you are, because obviously, and, and so we should say that we can have all these conversations about produce and what our suspicions about produce and things that we relish, but we, we're lucky. There are an awful lot of people who are living in either food deserts or a new word, term I learned today, food swamp, right? Yes. Yes. Tell, tell me, does everybody know that? Does people know that? Tell, tell right. them what a food swamp is. Sure. So, well, food deserts are places that don't have grocery stores. That was really the main definition. Um, but food swamps are places that have plenty of food options, but the options that are healthy are completely inundated by the options that are unhealthy. So, you know, there, there was a lot of research trying to figure out if we put a grocery store into an area that doesn't have one, will people's diets improve? And unfortunately, it didn't look like that was happening the way we expected. And part of it was there were so many other unhealthy, less expensive options around that people were sort of turning to those. So that was the idea that it's, that it's sort of, a, the food's there, but it's swampy. Right. And, and, and you just wind up making, people wind up just making terrible choices. I mean, people make economic choices. Yes. And I think it's really complicated. I've had so many, and I'd love to hear what you guys think, discussions with people like, is it really true that it's more expensive to eat a healthy diet? And I think that you can kind of find examples both directions, but the piece of data that we have to remember to include is time, because I think you can buy inexpensive raw ingredients and have a healthy diet, but you have to know how to make it and you have to have the time to make it. Yeah, right. That's the hardest part, yeah. right? And I think that's where we slip the most. Mm -hmm. We don't right. have time. And we're fighting a machine that's giving us the bad food at such a rate. And they're smart, right? <laughs> we talked about this at dinner. The food scientists, I have some friends that are food scientists. They are the smartest people, and they know how to make the bad food taste good. Kraft macaroni and cheese? <laughs> okay. It's changed now. It's better for you, but... Even when it was really bad and had a lot of chemicals, right, and powdered cheese food, you can't say it tasted bad because it was engineered to taste good. A McDonald's hamburger, I had one the other day, <laughs> right? I, because you have to. Sometimes you get the craving and it's late and you got to have one. Okay, so, but when I bought it, I sat in the car and I looked at it and I was like, this does not look appetizing at all. But I guess you're not supposed to look at it. You're supposed to quickly <laughs> bite into it. And as soon as you bite into it, it tastes really, really good because it's engineered to taste good. Now, if I were to serve you a steak with no salt, uh, some beautiful just come out of the field broccoli with no salt, no butter, and right to make this a really, you, it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be as tasty as that hamburger. So the question is, how do you compete with the food companies that are so good at making bad food. Well, you have a toxicologist sitting uh, on... <laughs> well, I mean, the point that he's making, and this is one, Michael Pollan was the first person that I know of who really started writing about this, that these foods were not only engineered to taste good, they were engineered to make you want more of them, mm -hmm. right? They, that was one of their, their categories, one of their goals was to create a food that you would not be satisfied with you know, some normal portion of. But, you know, the point that he's making is must be interesting to you as a scientist because these food engineers have kind of raced ahead of where food was decades ago. 
Right, right. And, but I think there's a longer history than that. So for a, a very long time, there was an effort in many societies to try to make white flour. And white flour and cakes were a status symbol. And then sugar, too. Going back 500 years, sugar was a rare thing and was treated as a spice. And so now with modern technology and the Industrial Revolution, those things are sort of abundantly available. And so that's sort of wrecked havoc with the diet and processed food. But so much of our taste is sort of evolutionary in nature. So we're primed to want to taste sugar, right? Because mm. that was good for human survival. Mm. But it's, it's sort of worked against us in a modern, abundant society. So we're still in the produce department. We've got to get moving here, Marty. <laughs> um, so we should go over to, to, to meat uh, and fish. What are you looking for in meat and fish? What are your concerns in meat and fish? So I do typically buy fish, but again, I feel like there are a lot of messages out there about fish. On the one hand, salmon, it seems like one, a fish that you're, is great and you're supposed to have, but then you hear about how you're not supposed to eat too many of big fishes, you want to have more small fish. So I think there is a lot of confusion with that. Do you want to talk I about salmon? I just get lost. <laughs> oh, no, I'm on the, what's the Monterey Bay Aquarium's most hated chef in America list? Mm. Because <laughs> they, they were, years ago, had a big thing where you're only supposed to eat wild salmon, not farm-raised salmon. And my big argument to them, and we did this in a public forum, was there's not enough wild salmon for us to eat. That, that's a problem, right? That we have to have some farmed salmon, and we should just do it better. And yeah, that's a whole, I mean, that's the thing about food. It's, it, there is no easy answer, right? You can't eat all wild fish because we're too big a population right now. If we ate all wild fish, then all the wild fish would be gone. And we've seen that with swordfish and tuna, right? And cod, and it constantly changes. So we do have to start farming and farming better. So I look for a balance between having farm stuff that is farmed well and having wild stuff. Mm -hmm. But this is a big area of concern, right? I, I was, mm -hmm. years ago, so the current has gone through a number of restaurant critics. This is one of the early ones. I, I'm withholding his name, A, for his own privacy, and B, because I can't remember it. But um, <laughs> probably more of the latter. Um, and I said to him, this is maybe 20 or more years ago. I said, is there anything you won't eat? He said, I won't eat farm-raised salmon, because he really thought, uh, Allison, it was dangerous, you know, mm -hmm. just the conditions under which it was raised. But to Chris's, I, I have a friend in San Francisco who often says that he expects someday to be in a restaurant where they'll bring him the last fish. They'll <laughs> say, all right, this is it. You got the last fish. Enjoy it. There's no more fish after this for anybody. Um, I mean, we sort of, this is a, a problem that needs to be solved, right? On the one hand, we're told it's the most healthy flesh to eat, but... If there is any healthy flesh to eat. Yeah, talk about that. So, yeah, so, so if you look at the data, especially in the last couple of years, comparing people who eat a plant-based diet compared to people who eat any animal protein, so whether vegetarian or whether omnivore, there's serious differences in overall lifetime cancer risk and in risk of cardiovascular disease. And there just, there seem to be scientific links between any consumption of animal products and, and and disease. Yeah, but it's not because of the way we're raising the animals. It's not the wild animals that we used to eat, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's, yeah. we've done bad things to, right, our, mm -hmm. our herds of, of cows and pigs. I mean, we don't raise them properly anymore. And it doesn't seem like we care because I've told people stories of things I've seen and mm -hmm. people still go and buy chicken in the supermarket without even a second thought. Mm -hmm. Right, I, I will say that, I mean, you know, there are reasons to go to Big Y 
And then there are some things that maybe you do occasionally want to kind of segregate and deal with in a different way. For most of the last 10 years, I bought most of the meat that I eat and serve to other people from farmers where I know, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, talk about an economic scale issue here, though. We're talking about a $35 chicken, right? And not everyone can do that. Right. Not everyone can do that. But I mean, if you are concerned at that level, anyway. I, I keep going back to it. It's so complicated because I, I met a doctor once and he said, you know, we're tougher than you think. Mm-hmm. Not to me, to another chef who I was with who was very much on the, you know, you have to eat all organic and all fresh and all this and all that. And he was like, you know what, you're, you are tougher. Yeah, you shouldn't eat a lot of bad stuff, but your body can process and push stuff through okay. I mean, we're living longer now than we ever have, and we're eating worse than we ever have. But I, I also Isn't feel that, like... that kind of true? I mean, probably if we ate meat a little bit more... We didn't insist on eating things the size of our heads. Right. Um, <laughs> we'd be, we could eat meat. Well, right, and I definitely think portion sizes are a huge problem that, you know, we we just look at the plate and we want to see a lot of food, and if we don't see a lot of food, then people start complaining. But in terms of our health, I'm not entirely sure that that's true. I mean, one of the statistics that people who study childhood obesity talk about a lot is that this generation of children is not expected to live as long or as healthy as previous generations. And it's the first time that's ever happened. So I do think that the diets that our kids are, are growing up with are a concern. Okay, so we're going to take a break right now. We're live from Watkinson School. Let's hear it for this great panel. Should we move over to grains and breads and things like that? Should we do that? We, I should say that to get ready for this, one of the things we did, we read this terrific piece that's in last week's New York Magazine by Mark Bittman and Daniel Katz. Da- David Katz. David Katz, yeah. And so they just, it's like, it goes on for pages and pages, but they answer like all of your questions, all the questions that they've ever been asked about what's good to eat. And it was, I thought, a terrific and very informative piece. But at one point it was sort of like, well, carbs are bad, right? Carbs are bad. And, and whoever's answering the question going, well, that's, no, that's like, a lot of things are made out of mm-hmm. carbohydrates. So, uh, Allison, give us your scientific, as we're heading over towards the grains and the breads and the things that we call carbs, although carbohydrates are really in all kinds right. of things. Give us a scientific take on all this. To me, a simple way to think about it is the proportion of fiber per, per unit of carbohydrate. So if there's a lot of fiber, then it's well-balanced. It's going to be absorbed more slowly. So the more you refine a carbohydrate, the more quickly it's absorbed as sugar into the bloodstream and the more highly it would promote diabetes for example and so but if you have a lot of fiber in there so so brown rice versus white rice there's a big difference there in terms of how quickly your blood sugar is elevated so and Chris I asked you this before we get started but are people come into the restaurant who are on particular diets right mm-hmm. yeah and what and, do they say? And we like, modify the, and they ask to modify the menu to fit their diet. And we do it because we're customer focused. Yeah. And it's always changing. And it, keeps it, it actually keeps it kind of exciting because you know where people are by their requests, right? You know right. where the, the diet fads mm-hmm. are, the no bread, the no gluten. I mean, there can't be that many celiac people in Simsbury. <laughs> There's hundreds. <laughs> right. One percent of the population has the disease. Ten yep. percent might have a sensitivity. Yeah. I read the Pew study of American diets. I think we consume 33 pounds of oil in a year, but not because we're putting it on our salad in oil form. I mean, that's a child, you know. <laughs> 
The child is 33 pounds. We're eating a child of oil every year. I mean, we're just ingesting a tremendous amount of oil that's like in processed stuff, right? Well, I, right. I think a lot of the, the sugar, the salt, and the saturated fat is in the processed food. I mean, especially the sodium. I think that is one of the sneakiest things that you can consume a lot of and not realize it because you're not putting it on with a salt shaker, but it's in the food that you're buying in a package. Right. Right. And you go to places, I think they've actually got a little bit more of a handle on it. I have just enough of a, and I'm going to say an old guy thing now, but I have enough of a blood pressure issue that I watch sodium a little bit. And I used to occasionally buy some of those prepared things at Trader Joe's and just you flip those over and it's like, you, it's like your sodium for four days or something. You can't have any salt for four days after you eat this. I mean, it really is kind of astonishing. And it's just sort of there to make it taste, well, it's part of the engineering process, I assume. Right. right. And it makes inferior food tastes better, right? So if you're right. using, if you're not using the ripest, freshest tomato, if you're not using the best broccoli or the best meats or whatever, salt can hide all that. It's also a great preservative. It's also so great. food will last longer. Yeah. So, okay, let's go over to the frozen area now. This is an interesting thing for me because I'm the kind of person who does go to farmer's markets and most years I'll go to winter farmer's markets where people are growing stuff under cover and everything like that and I want to support the farmers and I want to get things that are fresh. But other than that, I feel like sometimes I'm better off with frozen vegetables that were, okay, he's shaking his head over there, but, well, you can't, you know, well, let's, talk, let's talk about, we'll, yeah. let's start with the scientist over there, we'll go right down the line. Yeah. Frozen fruits, frozen vegetables, where are you on that? I'm a, a pro, yeah. <laughs> um, because they're, they're often frozen right after harvest, and so they're fresher than the produce you buy in the produce section, and more nutritionally sound. Yeah, I love frozen peas. Right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely love them. I like frozen peas actually better than when the spring peas come. To me, they're easier to eat, they're easier to deal with, and they taste better. Yeah, I definitely think it's great to have some frozen vegetables available, especially because then they're there when you need them. Right. And we end up, actually, back to the berries, we do end up buying a lot of frozen berries, and then my kids will use them to make smoothies and things like that. I'm like your kids, I do exactly that same thing. Well, is there kind of a chef thing where you're not supposed to use frozen things, or can you... Some chefs, yeah. yeah. Some chefs are totally against it, but I, I disagree. I, we, freeze our, we start freezing corn the day it's picked. You know, the first corn we get in, we buy a bushel for the restaurant, a bushel for the freezer. Right. And then every time we buy it, the one bushel goes in the freezer. We take it off the cob, shot, blanch it real quick, put it in bags, and then we have fresh corn all year. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Certain, th certain vegetables freeze better than others, right? We don't freeze zucchini, yeah. broccoli. They get a little mushy, but certain things like peas and corn. Carrots. What about spinach? Really, spinach, cooked spinach freezes really well. Yeah, I feel like we have this prejudice now that, and that's been accelerated by the, the incredible displays of, of fresh produce that we mm -hmm. see that the, this is what we should be buying. But it seems to me that a lot of times, you know, and it's also, I feel about vegetables and fruits kind of the way I feel about gyms, which is that the best gym you can join is not the cheapest gym or the most expensive gym or the gym that, it's the gym you'll actually use, the one you're gonna use. <laughs> Right. You know, if you actually are going to get to it three or four times a week, that's the best gym. I don't care. I don't need to know anything else about it. And it's kind of like that, too. You sort of said that at the beginning, too. If, if you'll use it, if there's something about it. That's why I like the triple washed things, you know, because you'll wind up using them. Right. No, I, I totally agree with that. And I think, you know, people getting sort of hung up on, you know, which ones you really want to just go with, like with kids, like whichever ones they like, you know, and try to introduce new fruits and vegetables. But if, you know, if this is one that they really like, then that's fine. And th that's not a problem. We have, like, nobody goes, wow, I was meaning to eat that gelato, <laughs> you know, and I just didn't. And I, 
I don't even know if it's any good anymore. It's been sitting here, you know. I mean, there's sort of things that we sort of seem to manage to get to. Um, Quicker. <laughs> yeah, they don't go rotting away in our refrigerator. All right, you know, Chris, you and I were talking about this mm -hmm. at dinner, too. That there's, like, there are things that we really like, and we don't mind spending some money for them, and a nice fruity olive oil or whatever. You know, it's, it's great. But I was looking at these prices today, and I was taking pictures of them with my phone, and I was thinking... You know, well, you said, yeah. you said we're going to have the French Revolution yeah, all over again, I'm, but it's I'm be half about this, French, right? and I, I learned that one at a really young age. They walked from Paris to Versailles. And, yeah, there was a lot of other issues going on there, but one of the biggest issues was no one had food, or and no one could afford food. And those are, yeah, that's why we go back and forth, and we were talking at dinner, too, about, so fast food is bad, our food system's not great, but if we changed it today, and we all went to this healthy, plant-based, you know, this whatever we think is nirvana, could we feed everybody? And that's a question I don't have the answer to, and I don't know if anyone does, right? Could we feed everyone? Because we're having a hard enough time doing it now, and a lot of the stuff we're eating isn't even food. Mm. Think, yeah, 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 I, yeah, I think the environmental information is that, yes, we could, that the amount of energy that goes into growing grains so that we can feed them to beef cattle and then raising the beef cattle to, to finish is an enormous amount of resources per calorie, that we could grow a lot more food and have a lot more calories available if we weren't doing it in the form of meat. Well, I mean, I just think it would require a complete change to the whole system. I, you know, if we were to do it tomorrow, I think that would be a problem. But but I think if we gradually, and, and hopefully some of this is happening, that people are buying, you know, sort of demanding more of the healthier products, and so they're being produced, and things will shift over. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this much. One thing that I do, do want to say, one of the most heartbreaking scenes I've ever seen on television, and I thought it was so smart, too, it was in one of the early seasons of The Wire, there were two characters who one of them was a, a guy who you know seemed like a fairly decent moral person, but because of the circumstances into which he was born and in which he was trying to survive, he had been dealing drugs, and he'd made enough money so that he could take his significant other to a nice restaurant. But they had been living in the projects all their lives, and they went to a nice restaurant, and David Simon is such, a, such an amazing writer. They, they really didn't know how to be in the restaurant. In other words, the menu, the, the way food was served and talked about was all in a whole different set of mores and customs and languages than they, they were used to. And I, you know, it, I guess I hadn't thought about it that, but it's, fun, it's cute for me to tell a little story about Evu and not knowing what it is. But really, this is a real huge class marker in this country, right? That's Who knows the disconnect you were talking about, yeah. right. right? That's the difference between the haves and have-nots, right? And if food isn't for everyone, and that's why maybe it is choice, maybe we're saying that's the way we should do it, but I think we've got enough research. I mean, we were talking about research done in the 70s, and we're still doing the same thing. I and mean, we, we knew back then it wasn't right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you want to rise in America, if you want to be able to move through corporate ranks or whatever, you have to master the food codes at a certain point, a way, the way that we talk about food. It's one of the ways that sort of indicates who we are as a people. Yeah, and I do, there is definitely a huge sort of economic predictor of restaurants. That, so there have been studies to look at, like as people's income goes up, do they spend more money on food? They don't spend more money on food at the grocery store, but they go to much nicer mm -hmm. restaurants. That's how they spend it. 
Hmm. All right, so we're going to move into questions, but first I have an assignment for you. So ultimately what we're going to do is we're going to take this audio, we're going to turn it into a radio show, but we have to have two breaks in the radio show so people can come on and tell you about the weather or whatever they're going to tell you. So to do that, we're going to do, you're going to do some enthusiastic but not, not overweening applause, all right? So, um, so and then what's that? Kion Wolf is gonna take that and edit it, drop it into various places so it'll sound like it really happened exactly where it happens in the show. Don't tell anybody about this, all right? Just, it's all very organic. Um, all right, so uh, let's go. I'm, so get ready. We're gonna take one more break. We're gonna come back with the end of this conversation, but right now, we are live from Watkinson School. This side of the room was, I thought you guys were stronger that time. Uh, <laughs> hands up, hands up. Yeah, I see somebody right there. Some people down that way. Danny's got his hand up. I don't know. That could be a problem. But. Uh, the American obsession with nothing ever running out in supermarkets and restaurants has implications. And I guess policy implications in, in terms of waste, but also cost, freshness, and so forth. So you go to Whole Foods. We're picking on Whole Foods. We might as well stay with Whole Foods. You don't just get grilled salmon. You get all six different types of grilled salmon that they have on, in this you know, part of the country or this season, whatever it is. Never, ever, ever, ever can they run out. Not at 11 p.m. on a Tuesday night. Not ever. And so it's always, I've always thought that you could get a lower price if you just agree to, ha to have some things run out. Like, who really cares what kind of salmon you get if you want salmon? Or for that matter, get steak. It, it nonetheless remains an American obsession. We can't run out of anything ever. What are the implications of that? Marlene, you want to start with that? That's, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I was on the board of the Connecticut Food Bank with someone who was a manager of a stop and shop. And she explained to me that no one will take like the last loaf of bread, that it is very, people get very upset if there isn't a lot there. Um, it is a problem. And I do think a lot of food ends up going to waste. Now, at, from the food bank perspective, though, it's kind of the good news, because sometimes if, you know, things are getting close to expiration and, and people aren't buying it, then they do end up here in Connecticut, it gets donated to one of the two food banks we have, and they are able to turn it around and get it out to people in need. But it would be nice if we could find a way to have um, the grocery stores not have that pressure to have so much all the time. We throw away f almost 50% of the food we buy. Hmm. And that's not restaurants and supermarkets, that's everybody. Mm. So I mean, that's basically when you go, I mean, and I just think of it in money too. So if your weekly shopping bill is $200 a week or $300 a week, 150 of it goes in the garbage, almost 100, right? It's 40%, they said, right? So somewhere between 40 and 50%. That's a lot of waste. Right, mm. so the waste is on both ends. I mean, that the waste that you're talking about is that at the supermarket where they feel like it would be better to throw out quite a bit of food than run out of food, and, and then we take yeah. it home. I, I will say that as somebody who buys a lot of stuff at farmer's markets, you know, because like I've spent $1.25 on a parsnip or something, I really don't want to throw it out. You know, it was like really expensive. <laughs> I mean, I feel like some, there's pre some pressure to use it in something. And supermarkets also do, I mean, I don't, I don't, there's probably not much they can do with the salmon if it starts to go bad, but they do, if there's bruised fruit and stuff like that, they have ways we, of... We have a sign in the kitchen, better to run out than throw out. People get mad at us, but mm -hmm. we, we don't, well, yeah, we can't. You, otherwise, you lose your business. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, next question. Yeah, right there. I just uh, wanted to touch on sort of the cultural aspect a little bit of all this, and everyone was talking about how different it is in Europe, and um, 
I did have the opportunity to live abroad for a little while and would have defended the American food system before I went over there as we feed a lot more people, a lot more people eat, live longer than they have. And I, I take the point of this generation, but until I went over there and the food is just better over there and people eat better over there. But they also get less done in a day than we do, or at least attempt to do less things in a day. So their culture is built around eating differently. And some of that, if you look at, there's so much that goes into that in terms of the world wars having been fought there and <laughs> that all that goes into how they eat and what they eat and when they eat it, where, you know, when they see me eating a sandwich behind the wheel driving, <laughs> they know I'm an American <laughs> in town. <laughs> so, um, so it's just, um, that, you know, everybody here is now everything's organic and you have to eat the avocados and I want superfoods and all that, but, you know, I'm still eating a sandwich behind the wheel. And so the question is how much we would, you think we would actually be able to change in the type by just talking, focusing on, you know, eating organic or eating green or eating no pesticides or how much of it is just sort of built into the Americanism of who we are. I'm really glad you're asking this question. Also, they have more standard transmission over there, so that's another reason. <laughs> that they don't the also, not, I was the only one with an automatic. Yep. <laughs> yeah, very hard to do that. That's like that's like another one-hour conversation, but we should yeah. say a little bit about it too. I mean, I think things have changed a lot here, and I think there are a lot of reasons. One of them, and I always feel funny even saying this, is more women in the workplace and not home, where making dinner or going shopping was sort of you know one they had something a lot of time to devote to that. So I think with um, a lot of two-parent you know, where both parents are working and you need to get food t on the table for dinner, you end up going for a lot of those faster things and not spending as much time. So I think we need to sort of, you know, back up a little bit and figure out how to get people to change their priorities, having more time and, and being able to afford to do that. I love us. <laughs> I do. It's, it, and I'm from both, right? So my parents, I'm first generation American. My whole family is there. So I have no family except for two brothers, my mom and dad in the United States. And I love us. I love the way we live. I love that we work like we do and that we eat sandwiches. I applauded the last time I was in Paris with my dad and I saw a wave of Starbucks cups coming out. Oh, <laughs> and he was appalled yeah. and saying all these things under his breath. And I was just cheering. <laughs> because that is something you really don't see. You have not seen in Paris. Walking down the street drinking coffee is just like something. But they're doing it now. Well, that's, I don't want them to. Starbucks is there. And I love, I went into Starbucks to use the bathroom and I bought a coffee just so I could walk down the street with it. <laughs> I, I'll just quickly tell a story. I could talk about this all day, but a few years ago I was by myself in France on a bike trip and it happened to be at a time when they were having a heat wave. And I was just bicycling alone through the Dordogne region of France, and a couple of things happen. First of all, like water's really heavy. You know, you won't have to quite carry too much of it on your bike, but on the other hand, you don't want to run out of water. And the entire trip became about the color of my urine. Like every day I would just look and go, well, that's not, that's not good. It's the color of that flower right there. That's, that's not what color my urine should be. And, and so uh, that was like my whole vacation was like looking at that and going, oh my God. Um, so then I try to carry more water, but it would be heavy. And, and a couple of things that I did notice, and it's to your point, which is that I'd stop in a little town and I'd have lunch and I'd load up on a little bit of water and then I'd, I'd ride through a couple of towns. But now it was two o'clock in the afternoon and there's like nobody in a little French town is, first of all, there's no CVS or anything like that. How do you not live? A tobacco. <laughs> there's not, you know, and there's no one out. 
there's no one, you can't find a person. I don't know what they're sleeping or something. It's a hot summer day. They are not out. And eventually I came to a little town one day and I found like a spout that was like sitting out on the town. And I don't know, it was for animals or... I was Water just, your dog. <laughs> I was in no position to be picky. I just filled up the bottle with that, you know. But I was just realizing that in America, we expect that food will be available to us right. at the gas time. station. Yeah. All, yes, you can get uh -huh. fried chicken at the gas station, uh -huh. you know. Um, and they, they, we just think that. Right, and that restaurants will be open all day. Right. 24 hours. We have a diner in Torrington, 24 hours. Right. And it also does lead to that thing where you don't set time aside to have food and have it be. I think in Europe it's a much more serious thing in some ways. The, you know, and the maitre d' is a very serious person, you know, that you treat with a certain amount of gravity, too. And it, I, it's, it seems to me a lot healthier. Can't we have both? <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't know the answer. Can't, All right. Can't we drive in the car? Right. So we get some questions here. We have a question in the front row here. Yeah, this is a, a penetrating and insightful question. <laughs> Actually, we're supposed to say that to you afterwards. You have not talked about Lay's potato chips. Woo-hoo! Can't just eat one. And the question is, I, I love to cook, like you call it, it relaxes me, but champagne and old-fashioned, classic Lay's potato chips served with your champagne. Comment on that, please, Chris. <laughs> oh, I'm getting excited. Put the, put the Lay's potato chips in the freezer next time, just for a little while, like a half an hour before you eat them. It's a whole new experience. Seriously. Okay, this is turning Sorry. into the food shemote. Right Sorry. I'll, I promise not to do that. <laughs> um. All right. Other questions here? Hands up. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. All right. I have a question about the raspberries that you liked. They were good. <laughs> they were good. I agree. We will pick fruit locally, and, and it's very good. However, raspberries that I pick locally just aren't quite as good as those ones that are in the supermarket. I mean, these things are perfect. Why is that? I mean, these things are transported from Mexico, and yet you get them up here. They look perfect. Is it engineering, some kind of... Oh, there's a lot of effort made to uh, yes. make them look perfect, yeah. So they're, they're bred to look perfect, and, and more recently we're using genetic engineering to make them perfect. And so, so they're very carefully selected. So we don't have the same variety of species that we used to have. So, so we talked about the homogenation of the, uh, the produce section, um, but it's worse than that. So there is one variety of broccoli mm -hmm. that's grown anymore, and, and mm -hmm. so same for raspberries. Yeah. What I'll say, though, is that the soil that something is grown in can impart a very different flavor. And so if you don't like the raspberries in one area, one of the great things about New England is that there's a lot of variety of soil. And so going a few towns over and finding another place to try them, um, you might find some more to your liking. I feel like one thing that, Marlene, I haven't really asked you about, at Rudd, I mean, I think for the most part when you guys look at the future, you're worried. You, you worry that trends that are very, very unhealthy for us are going to continue and get worse. Do you see, is, is there, are there any things about the future that make you a little bit more hopeful food-wise? Well, I do feel like we have made some progress. So I think that certainly in terms of school food, which is something that I've studied a lot with the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act, we saw a lot of changes, a lot of improvements to the regulations around school lunch, to getting a lot, like here in Connecticut, actually, we got soda out of schools in, you know, 2006. Mm -hmm. So I think that there has been improvement. And I do believe that as, you know, sort of this next generation of children grow up with, you know, just having it be normal that you're 
lunch always comes with a fruit or a vegetable, that that will have some impact. So that's what I think about when you know I'm trying to think about the future and not get too depressed. I think the food industry, it's going to take government regulation. They're not going to regulate themselves. They're not going to change their behavior because it's the right thing to do. It's mm -hmm. going to have to become the economic smart thing to do to really change their practices. I mean, one of the big you know frightening trends is if you go from 1970 to the present, just the sheer number of calories has changed. We're eating mm -hmm. about 25% more calories, like every single person pretty much uh, is eating that much more, which is astonishing and uh, not a trend that we could really sustain too much longer, you would think. So how about you, Allison, as you sort of look at the future, what do you look yeah. at? What do you think about? The calorie density of today's foods worry me. That when you when you remove fruits and vegetables and, and you add in the, the wheat thins and the triscuits and, and all the processed food, you're, you're getting into really calorie-dense foods that don't fill you up the same way that less dense foods do. In the future, I, you know, I, I see optimism in my students in that they want to talk about it. They want to know more and they want to know what's real. And they recognize that there are a lot of fads out there that, that are not backed up by real science. All right. So before we say uh, goodbye here, I first of all want to thank uh, all of you for coming out today. we got great people up there from Event Resources. They're the people who make the sound so good. They've been with us the whole six years. I wouldn't know how to do the thing without Event Resources. They're so great. I'll just quickly tell you one last story here, which is that so a few years ago, I was doing the Connecticut Forum with Anthony Bourdain and Duff Goldman, who at that time was the ace of cakes, and Alice Waters. So we were on stage at the Bushnell and we had our thing and we went into the green room and Alice Waters said, I don't think they like me as much as they like the other guys. Because Alice Waters is really about eating in a lot of the ways that we've been talking about here. And she's, she was kind of stressing about this. She, she, they seem like they're having more fun and they're more popular and the audience is laughing at the things that they say. And I said, well, let's go out. When we go out, I'll ask you a question that'll sort of get you in that direction. And so we went out on stage after the intermission, and I said, uh, is, there, is there any kind of really bad junk food that you've ever really wanted a lot? And she said that on one occasion, and she has a very serious way of saying everything, so she very seriously said on one occasion, someone had sent her a big barrel of caramel, caramelized popcorn, and she ate a tremendous amount of this barrel, and then she threw it in the trash can because she was alarmed at how much she was eating of this caramelized popcorn. And she got up the next morning and got it out of the trash can <laughs> and ate the rest of it. Nice. <laughs> the audience went wild. They, you know, they were so happy that Alice Waters was just like them. Um, so anyway, on that note, we've had to, I, I, I feel lucky and blessed with this terrific panel up here. I mean, what a great balance. We really did have sort of policy, Epicureanism, and science. So thank you, Allison Draper from Trinity College, Chris Prosperi from Metro Beast, Marlene Schwartz from the Red Center, uh, and UConn. Uh, one more round of applause for a terrific panel. Thank you for coming out tonight. Come back next season. Like a vegetable, scarlet like a vegetable, natural like a vegetable.